So we're considering this doctrine of Christian liberty, and you'll remember that in, in considering this, we have to first be reminded that liberty is first and foremost from some type of bondage, and then secondly, unto some other activity. And our confession begins with the liberty from that first aspect. If anyone has been liberated, then you would ask, well, what have they been liberated from? And now that they have been liberated, how are they allowed to live? How can they now live in that, in that liberated state? And that's the way the confession deals with it. Now, last time we were together, we dealt with that phrase, and I'll just read the first portion of this paragraph. The liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from... And the first phrase was the guilt of sin. Remember, guilt is the state that a person finds themselves immediately upon breaking a law. Uh, Preceding any public declaration of guilt, they are already intrinsically guilty because they've broken the law. And we saw that Christ has, has entered into our place and stood there as if and was treated as if He were guilty. We see that on the cross. And He done that in order that we might stand before God and go into the presence of God and stand and be treated as if we were not guilty. And and we have to consider all of these things under the, the, the legal language that the Scriptures give us and use to describe the Gospel work. If if we were to examine ourselves just as we are, we would say, well, of course I'm a sinner. I am guilty in myself. The question is, how does God, in a legal sense, consider and treat His people based on what Christ has done? The best way to understand understand that is to look at Christ on the cross. Was He, in that moment, intrinsically guilty of any sin? No, but He was treated as if He were guilty in our place. It's, it's a, a legal transaction that, we're, that we very often understand the gospel in and, and the language of, of legality and, and the penal system. Now moving forward, we're going to consider tonight the next phrase. And reading from the beginning of the paragraph again, the liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from, the next phrase would be, the condemning... Wrath of God. Now, this is a very closely related theme, but it is distinct as we'll see. And open up this subject, I want to briefly look at two verses from this third chapter of John, which will, I think, help help give us a starting point. Because our confession has this phrase, condemning wrath. Now, I think it's acceptable to ask, what is condemning wrath? Wrath Is that the same as regular wrath? Is this any different than the way we typically think of wrath? Well, we look at these two verses, I think there are some clues here because the Lord makes parallel statements in this chapter, really saying the same thing twice. There, there is a difference. Saying the same thing twice, but He uses different terminology. In one verse, He uses the word condemned. And then in another verse, He uses the word wrath. And they are parallel, so we put them together. And again, I think this helps us to understand the concept of condemning wrath. The first text is John 3, 18. 
And this is Jesus speaking. He says, whoever believes in Him, He's speaking of the Son of God, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now look at verse 36 and notice the the parallel. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains or abides on him. Do you see how how close these verses are in their wording? Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In both of these verses, the Lord Jesus is comparing those with faith and those without faith. The believer versus the unbeliever. Now watch what happens if we sort of splice these verses together or cut them up and lay the different parts beside each other. In verse 18, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Present faith, whoever believes right now and continues to believe, present faith in a person means that they presently possess eternal life. It's not something we're looking forward to someday, even though there is a future hope. It's something we have. Whoever believes right now in Him has eternal life. And that present eternal life in verse 36 is paralleled with, in verse 18, presently not condemned. He's not condemned now and he presently possesses eternal life. The believer at the moment of saving faith possesses eternal life and is not condemned. Verse 18 again, But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Not something in the future. Now, right now, is condemned already. Verse 36, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. That's future. So both of these have this this comparing of the believer with the unbeliever. What the believer has now versus what they can look forward to. What the unbeliever has now versus what they can look forward to or or not look forward to. Present unbelief in in these verses means that a person is presently condemned right now. It's not something future. It's already happened. Present disobedience. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. That's future. So the unbeliever is already under condemnation. To be condemned is to be officially judged as liable to punishment. Now think about this in relation to guilt that we saw last week. Guilt is the state that someone enters immediately upon committing a crime. They they are guilty of that crime, even though they may await a trial and sentencing. The sentence doesn't make them guilty, it just declares their guilt. That's what condemnation is. To be condemned means that this guilty state is made publicly known and the person is publicly sentenced to be punished based on their guilt. They are To be condemned is to be declared legally liable by a judge who is able to make such a declaration. You were guilty when you committed the crime. 
You've gone through sentencing and you are condemned as guilty. Condemnation comes from the judge and officially declares the person liable to the full extent of the law for their crime. Now go back to the text in John. The unbeliever is presently condemned right now. If you are an unbeliever, God says of you, condemned. You're under the condemnation. You've already legally been determined, liable to the law of God, and you are awaiting the judgment. Compare that language to the end of verse 36. But the wrath of God remains or abides on Him right now. So, unbeliever, right now condemned, right now under wrath. So present unbelief, present disobedience means a person is presently condemned and presently under the wrath of God. Or if we put these two ideas together, the unbeliever is presently under the condemning wrath of God. There there is a wrath of God that is presently upon the head, abiding, resting upon the head of the unbeliever. Now, do they feel it? Sense it all of the time? No, but it's there. The believer or the Christian possesses eternal life. The Christian right now is not condemned. The believer is not under the wrath of God. Or to put it another way, the liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the condemning wrath of God. Now to understand what it means to be free from the condemning wrath of God, we must understand God. We must understand His wrath. We must understand His condemning wrath. And we must understand what it means to be then freed from the condemning wrath of that God. And so I want to open up that statement just like that, sort of backwards. God, wrath, condemning wrath, and then freedom. So first, let's just consider God. Now, some of this will be recap for us, I think. Uh, and if you say, I've heard all of this before, I know these things, well, then just listen and delight yourself in your God. Consider this God. We start with God. And invariably, when we begin to consider the character and the attributes of God, it's difficult, if not impossible, to focus on one attribute without considering some other attribute of God, without considering more than one. Well, why is that? Because God is one. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, yes, there is only one God. But beyond that, that one God is one. As we've said, and this is the way that men have spoken in the past in trying to define these terms, that God is a simple being. He is one. One. We are body and soul. God is God. Now think about that. I wrote that. I didn't think about it when I wrote it. And the more I've read it, this is intriguing. We are body and soul. God is God. What makes up God? God. He, He is who He is. As our confession says, He is without body, comma, parts, comma, or passions. And we'll get to the passions part in a minute. That means that in God there is a unity. 
because he, he is God. All of his attributes coincide with one another. As, as a matter of fact, when, whenever we begin to dissect his attributes, we're really doing something that helps us to understand these various manifestations of who God is. But ultimately, I believe in eternity, we're going to say attributes. What does that mean? We, we just have God and, and there he will be. It does help us to learn. We say very often, all that is in God is God. We are body and soul. God is God. When we consider God's wrath, we're not considering something God has or something God does as much as we are considering something God is. Something in God that is manifested for us to see. We also know that God is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. Psalm 93.2 says, Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. And Psalm 90 verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He's eternal. He's not subject to time. For God, moments do not pass by Him. But He sees all of what we call time as if it were one indivisible point. It simply is. And He beholds it. God is not any older today than He is a thousand years ago. And He will not be or He is not any older a thousand years from now than He is today. As Christ said, speaking according to His divine nature, before Abraham was, I am. He could say in that moment as He stood before men, I am before Abraham. Now, a related trait that, fought, that flows out of God's eternality is God's immutability. God cannot change. He is the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Or more popular passage maybe, Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. See, for changes to take place, there must be a sequence of moments in which at one moment God possesses one state, and then in the next moment He possesses a different state. He went from this to this as the moments progressed. But God is not subject to moments. He's eternal. Therefore, God is immutable. He cannot change. It's not possible for God to change. And this is why we confess that God is a God without passions. He is impassable. That means that God is not affected or moved by anything outside of Himself to change. Now, this is really hard to wrap our minds around, and very often the best way to consider it is to just compare it with the opposite attribute in ourselves. Because we're finite, we are subject to time. Therefore, we are subject to a sequence of moments that's always moving in this life. From one moment to the next, something outside of me can come into contact with me and change me, whether that be physically. I could stand in one spot and anybody in this room could come up to me and with a good shoulder, move me physically. So that in one moment, I'm standing here and in the next moment, I'm here. That's not possible with God. He is already in His fullness in every place. 
And the same is true for us spiritually or what we might call emotionally. A loved one could die. And because at one moment I did not know that information, and moving into the next moment I have come to know that information, that news can affect me internally. It can produce a change in me. I went from not knowing to knowing, and so therefore I can go from happy to sad or normal to sorrowful. God is not that way. God is impassable. He experiences no change, especially from any outside force. He is who He is. He will be who He will be. Who God is, He has always been. There is no change. Now, this doesn't mean that God lacks something, the things that we call emotions. What it means is that God actually is, in His being, the fullness of every perfection that could possibly characterize a rational and relational being. In God, they're all to the to the apex, to the pinnacle. There's no fluctuation. There's no growth or diminution. It just, He is the fullness of every perfection. And that never changes. God is also righteous and good. According to His moral character, He's righteous. Psalm 119, 142, Your righteousness is righteous forever. And your law is true. And Jesus Himself said in Mark 10, No one is good except God alone. Now goodness is not simply moral uprightness, although that is true, that would be righteousness. He is morally upright, but goodness is fullness of perfection. God is good in that He is the perfect, and again we're using human language here, the perfect sum total of every heavenly loveliness in perfect harmony and symmetry. But then I had to add in this little, this little you know, qualification as in the margin. The margin reads in my notes. That doesn't mean that He's constituted by some conglomeration, when we use the word sum total or harmony and symmetry, as if there are various things coming together. No, He is in Himself one simple, indivisible subsistence. And in that, He is all perfection. He is all goodness. And He is Himself the standard of all good. So even when we say the sum total of every heavenly loveliness, what are we talking about? We're talking about God. He is the heavenly loveliness. He is the harmony. He is the symmetry. He's righteous and He's good. And He is also just. Psalm 89.14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. In all of God's dealings, He acts in perfect harmony with Himself and His own law. God always deals in absolute equity with all of His creatures. Now that doesn't mean equality. That doesn't mean everyone gets the same thing. That means everyone gets what is right. What is just, not according to their standards, but according to God's standards. He's righteous, He's good, He's just. And of course we know 1 John 4, 8, God is love. What does that have to do with God's wrath? Well, whatever we might think of God's wrath, it can't contradict any of that. As a matter of fact, not only can it not contradict it, but it must perfectly align with 
all of those in a glorious, unbroken harmony. And so wrath is not God lashing out in uncontrollable anger. Even though some of the biblical language seems to imply the, the image of a lashing out or an explosion of indignation. Psalm 76, 7 says, But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? It sounds like God was slumbering and all of a sudden He's roused up in anger. Well, we must lay that aside what we know of God. Numbers 11, 1, The people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, His anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. A a fire is kindled, and the way that it reads, it's almost like the camp was just there, and the fire just happened to like burn over and, and just burn up some of the parts of it. Like, it was uncontrollable. But we know that it wasn't. Deuteronomy 32.16, they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. It sounds like he was doing fine, God wasn't bothering anybody, and all of a sudden he snapped and was provoked. But that's not true. These texts give the impression that God was fine one moment and then angry the next, or His wrath comes forth. But we have to lay that beside Exodus 34.6, that He is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. We have to read these other passages in light of God's self-declaration of who He is. It's a good hermeneutical tool that texts describing God's actions have to be subject to texts describing God's nature. When the Bible says God does not change, that's who He is. Now, when a human author watches the the interactions of God with his creatures, and it says the Lord changed his mind, it repented the Lord, and these things, we have to understand, whatever that means, it has to fit with God does not change. Whatever we think of God's wrath, it has to coincide with the full revelation of who God is. So then secondly, what is the wrath of God? Well, the wrath of God is that in God which manifests itself when the justice of God meets anything contrary to the goodness of God. Because God is good, He is righteous. Because God is righteous, He opposes everything that is not righteous. Everything that is not good, He is against it actively. And because He is just, anything that opposes God must be punished. He goes after it to punish anything contrary to Himself. The wrath of God is shown when the justice of God meets anything contrary to the goodness of God. And we know that since the fall of man into sin, the intentions and thoughts of the hearts of men have been only evil continually. So then it makes sense for the psalmist to say in Psalm 7:11, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Or He is angry with the wicked every day. It's just, this is who He is. He's just burning against the wicked. He's not changed. This is His condition. This is His nature. And indignation is often synonymous with God's wrath. Even though if we wanted to make distinctions, we could, for example. Usually when we meet with God's wrath, 
We see God acting out in some way. It's not simply that He feels wrath, but we see a a manifestation of it. Isaiah 5.25 says, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people, and He stretched out His hand against them and struck them. Now, the Lord doesn't have hands. He does not have a body like man. This is clearly anthropomorphic language. But it says He stretched out His hand against them and struck them. The mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this His anger has not turned away and His hand is stretched out still. Anytime you see the hand, this is God working in mighty power. That's typically the idea we get with wrath. God He's not just feeling, He's doing something. One of the more popular passages is in Nahum chapter 1. The Lord, this is verses 2 through 6, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before Him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before Him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. See, the wrath is very often connected with some outward display, something God does. So we might say that the wrath of God is shown when the justice of God meets anything contrary to the goodness of God and He then acts in punishment. Now typically when we think of the wrath of God, we only have in mind the wrath of God which will come upon the wicked at the end of the age and in eternity in hell. But that's not what our confession is dealing with here. And the Scriptures actually speak of God's wrath according to various stages. For example, there is a wrath of God that is revealed at the present time, as we've seen in John 3, as already abiding and resting upon unbelievers and yet unseen and unfelt. The wrath of God remains on Him. Ephesians 2.3 says that we were by nature children of wrath. Well, when did we inherit our nature? At conception. We come from the womb and the wrath of God abides. That's our nature an infant doesn't feel it. You don't sense it. You don't see it. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's presently. And you continue the passage. You know the, the manifestation of that is that God hands them over to their, their base lust. He, he gives them over to a debased mind. There are men living, every unbeliever lives at the moment under the wrath of God even though they may not sense it. Now think about that. The justice of God, meaning anything contrary to the goodness of God, in some sort of punitive manifestation, and yet they don't sense it. They don't know it. They don't feel it. That shows us that there are the punishments and the punitive acts of God that we might not see. That doesn't mean that God has forgotten, that God is not acting. There is that abiding wrath now. There is the wrath of God that is poured out in physical ways. We could say now or in, at the pre, in the present time. For example, the flood, 
God pouring out His wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah, God destroying the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD, plagues, wars, empires that fall. We were talking today at lunch about tsunamis and these various things around the world that come and you look at how they are manifest and you say the only way that that could have happened is if an almighty God in providence sent that for some purpose. These are ways that the wrath of God is manifest even now in physical ways. The Bible also speaks of God's wrath being stored up as if He's putting it into something to release it later. Romans 2.5 says, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There's a heaping up of judgment that's not poured out yet, but it will be at some point. That doesn't mean there is no wrath. It's there. God is storing it up. These people securing themselves a spot of final condemnation. This wrath is God Himself in justice witnessing against us according to His own law, judging us to be in the wrong and liable to judgment. And so that wrath is stored up. This person, they are destined for wrath, and so everything they're doing is going toward their account to be unleashed at a future time. If guilt is the natural state of the lawbreaker, then the wrath of God, or this stored up wrath, is God Himself holding us accountable to our guilt until He finally administers the full weight of wrath. And then there's, of course, that final wrath in hell, which meets the wicked upon their death and culminates in eternal torment. Jesus said to the Pharisees, when He saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to His baptism, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? There is something still to come on the horizon for the unbelievers. And we read of that in Revelation 6, where the men cry out, Hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The day of wrath is at Christ's return when He judges the wicked and will issue into eternity. So when we consider God's wrath, there is abiding wrath now that men have no idea They don't sense it, they don't feel it, they don't see it, but we know that it's there. There is wrath that's poured out physically now. There is wrath that's being stored up now. And there is wrath that will be poured out later. Now when you think of it in that sort of systematic way and categorize these things, you see that there is a progression in the wrath of God. Every This is the condition of every person born in Adam. We are born in wrath, children of wrath. And as long as we exist in a state of unbelief, the wrath of God abides upon us. If a person continues in that state, they are storing up wrath in their rebellion. And then in in eternity, they will endure and suffer that wrath for all of eternity in hell. This is the full gamut of God's wrath and how the Scriptures describe it for us. It's not just in the end. It's now. It's not just now, but it will be forever. And the eternal wrath is not going to be like the wrath that's poured out now because some of the wrath is being stored up now to only be poured out in eternity and unleashed in hell. Thirdly, condemning wrath. Our confession says that in Christ we've been freed from the condemning wrath of God. So the question is, which of these categories is being addressed here? 
Without going into the all, all the details, I believe it's safe to say that the confession has in mind, at least as a beginning point, the presently abiding wrath which rests upon the heads of unbelievers. When it says condemning wrath, the wrath that hangs over the head of every unbeliever, holding them accountable to the judgment to come. Now it is true that if we have been set free from that wrath, then we will be set free from those which follow it. We're released from the others as well. If we're freed from an, an early link in the chain, then the others that follow behind it will also have also been taken away. In other words, Christ has purchased for us freedom from the wrath of God which presently abides upon unbelievers. And more specifically, this is important, the manifestation of that present wrath which hymns in the unbeliever under the law until they suffer the penalty. This is condemning wrath, an official declaration of legal liability to punishment as an act of justice itself. God in His wrath condemns the sinner and says, in that state, if you meet your end in that state, you are and will be held liable to the law of God in that condition. The condemning wrath. You might not feel the condemning wrath. You might not sense it. A lot of people have no idea that, that this is looming over their heads. And they, and if you tell them, they don't care that this condemning wrath hangs over their heads. But this is the state of every person in Adam in unbelief. So then fifthly, we confess and the Bible teaches that the believer in Christ, because of what Christ has done, is free from the condemning wrath of God. To put it another way, if we go back to those verses in John 3, whoever believes in Christ is not condemned. If you are a believer in Christ, not mental assent, I believe that Jesus lived, I believe that Jesus died, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, that like we were mentioned in John 6, that faith that takes hold of Christ like the bread of life and lives upon who He is and what He's done, casting yourself upon Him. If you're a believer in that sense, a true believer, you're not condemned. There's no condemnation. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you are a believer, you presently possess eternal life, got it, and the wrath of God does not abide on you any longer. You've been freed from that. It was upon you, but you've been freed from the condemning wrath of God, released from the burden of a broken law, no longer responsible to render payment to justice. You've been freed from that punitive declaration of God's wrath, which did abide on you prior to your coming to Christ. And that's an, a, different, a different lecture altogether, but we, we wonder how can God predestine us in love and we be children of His love from eternity and yet in this world be by nature, children of wrath, how can those two things coexist? Well, there's only a problem there if you believe the wrath of God and the love of God are opposed to each other. 
But in God, they're not. They're in perfect harmony. So we'll set that aside. If you're a Christian, you've been freed from the condemning wrath of God. Now, how can that be? What did Jesus Christ do to set us free from this condemning wrath? We have to remember that it is our sin when met with the unwavering justice of an eternal God which exposes us to this condemning wrath. Not just active sins, but our nature in sin. By nature, children of this condemning wrath. If our sin is not dealt with according to God's justice, then we remain under condemnation. And the wrath of God abides upon us. If the wrath of God abides upon us, then we continue every moment of every day to store up wrath for the day of wrath. We open ourselves up to temporal outpourings of wrath. And we only have eternal wrath to await us upon our death and following the judgment. But if our sin be dealt with according to justice, then justice says, I'm satisfied. And no wrath remains. That's what Christ has done. He entered into our state and was treated as guilty. We saw that the last time. He was treated as if he were guilty. What does that mean? That he was treated as guilty. This is the next step. It means he endured the wrath of God as if he were the guilty party. The full scope of God's wrath In particular, the outpouring of wrath which awaits the unbeliever at the final judgment. In in taking the full scope of God's wrath, Jesus satisfies justice. And in satisfying justice, He extinguishes all of the other aspects of wrath, including the present condemning wrath of God. God no longer holds the believer as a condemned person. He says, this one who was formerly condemned, he is not condemned. We know the text very well, Romans 8, 1-3. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He, what? Condemned sin in the flesh. Now there are several things that are important here. There's that phrase, in Christ Jesus. And then when we figure out what that means, this says that there's no condemnation. There's no condemning wrath for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean to be in Christ Jesus? Well, we go back to John 3. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. There in these passages, it's faith which makes the demarcation. There are some who believe. There are some who do not believe. It's faith that Christ is dealing with in John 3. Not the extent of the atonement. We we know the passage well. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes, it's the believer, salvation is exclusive to believers and open to anyone and everyone who will believe. The point is faith. By faith, 
the soul reaches out and grabs a hold of the Christ of God, resting upon who He is and what He's done as the only ground or merit of a right standing with God. The soul looks at Him and says, that's the one my soul loves. I'll take Him and everything that comes with Him. I'll have Him. Grabbing hold of Christ by faith, the believer in that moment receives all of His benefits. At the moment of first faith, and you might not even sense this moment, but at the moment of first faith, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places is made over to the believer in Christ Jesus. We have to be careful there because we want to sort of say every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. No. Every spiritual blessing... In Christ Jesus. We get Christ. We get the person of Christ. He is every spiritual blessing made over to us. Now what are some of those blessings? Well, we saw this morning in baptism, Christ died. Christ paid the penalty for sin. Christ was raised from the dead as an accomplished Redeemer. And so by, in clinging to Christ by faith, what do we get? Well, we get His death for us. His death is made over to us as if we ourselves had actually endured that death. We deserve a death. Christ died the death. By faith we take hold of Christ and He says, you're liable to the law. The law says you must die. You need a death. Here, I've got one that is sufficient for you. And clinging to Christ by faith, we get His resurrection so that now we can walk in newness of life and have a hope of a physical resurrection to come. Through faith and our being united to Christ or being placed in Christ, we're treated by God in a legal sense in the same way that Christ is treated after His resurrection. Now, can you imagine Christ Jesus enduring the sufferings of the cross, entering into the grave on the first Lord's Day, rising from the dead. He's, in, he's already endured the wrath of God. He's, he rises from the dead. He walks out of the tomb. The, the resurrection being the affirmation of His work. Can you imagine Him walking out of the tomb fearful that there might be some, some wrath that's going to strike Him as He walks out of the tomb? Absolutely not. The very fact that He's walking out of the tomb is evidence there's no more wrath. For this one, that's what we have in Christ Jesus. We don't walk in fear of wrath. The wrath has already been poured out. The resurrection itself was proof positive that God was and is pleased that justice has been satisfied. So then we who have trusted in Christ have been set free from the condemning wrath of God and we can live and move in this world and in the next with no fear of condemnation. Why? Because of Christ. He purchased that freedom. This is Christian liberty. 